you guys did not get a chance to meet Taylor and Frank, they're from Central Campus and they're here in place of Doug and Liz this week. And so just wanna, if you could just join me in thanking them for coming on down. Thank you very much for leading us. Kids are dismissed. We have children's church thing happening right now. So kids will be walking out of here. Um, real quick, let me just catch you up to speed. Uh, my name is Doug, pastor here at Parkview East. And we spent the last three weeks at the beginning of the year, really, um, examining, kind of focusing in on what are some commitments that we as a people of God have. And um, if you did not get a chance to be here, if you missed one of those weeks, I would encourage you, the messages are posted, I think, on the app and online. And so I would encourage you to, if you get a chance to listen, to go ahead and check those out. But basically, we examined three commitments. The first was our commitment to the Word of God, right? As a people, we gather around this Word every Sunday. And, and our hope is that we just don't gather around it on Sunday. But this Word, God's Word, makes its way into your life all throughout the week, and it sustains you. It's what unites us, and it's what sustains us. Is God's word is living, and it's active. It's powerful, right? So we spent a week talking about our commitment to be a people about God's word. Then the week after that, we talked about prayer and our commitment to prayer. The, the reality is, as, as awesome and talented and gifted as many of you may be, apart from Jesus, none of us stand a chance. And, and the best Position the best posture that we can have as a people is the posture of just being on our knees, constantly crying out for God to intervene on our behalf. We are desperately in need of him. Prayer reminds us of that. So, you know, the next couple of weeks we've been gathering as a people, praying. Last week was powerful. Um, we would encourage you, if, if you have anything you want prayer for, if you want to intercede on behalf of somebody else, whether it's yourself or this church or our community, we would encourage you to, to prioritize that to try being here on a Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. It's powerful when we pray as a people. And then last week we examined kind of um, around Martin Luther King's holiday, uh, we examined our commitment as a people to racial reconciliation. And so last week that was the topic of conversation, that was the topic of the message. Again, if you didn't get a chance, I mean really our, our belief is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is one that does not just save us to God, it doesn't just reconcile us to God. It's, it's so powerful, it does reconcile us individually, personally, it gives us salvation, but it also offers us reconciliation among each other. It reconciles the brokenness, the pain that exists in our relationships with each other. Even pain that has been established over hundreds of years. Even pain and brokenness that the rest of the world might look at and say there's no way. We say with Jesus there is a way. And so as God's people... As a gospel-centered people, we are committed to living that out in the relationships in the community that we have. So we are committed to racial reconciliation. Now, if you remember, before uh, the holiday season, before Christmas, we were walking through the book of Mark. And this week, what we're going to do is we're going to turn back and continue that journey through the gospel of Mark. And so I would invite you to have, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. If you do not have a Bible or if you don't have one on your phone, um, we do have some. Craig back there, the, sw the red sweater man has got some Bibles. If you just raise your hand, the red sweater will find you, all right? If you need a copy of God's Word, just raise your hand, he will find you. Um, um, but I want to encourage you to turn there, Mark chapter 9. Now, just
just to, again, kind of refresh you, that Mark really is divided up into two sections. His gospel is divided up into two sections. The main subject of, of the gospel of Mark is the story of Jesus, the life and the ministry of Jesus. And we spent the first last semester walking through the first half. And if you were to take one word that would summarize what you learned in the first half of the gospel of Mark, that word, as a church, we've said we'll use is the crown, okay? There's a crown. Jesus demonstrated verse after verse, chapter after chapter, story after story, that he is the king, that he has authority over everything. He has authority over all of creation. He has authority over the demons. He has authority over disease. He has authority over nature. He has authority over nations. King Jesus reigns supreme. King Jesus reigns. He has a crown. Now, right before we took a break, we read a passage that kind of was the turning point in Mark. And the main word goes from the main focus goes from the crown of Christ to the cross of Christ. If you remember, there was a word that was repeated over and over and over again in the first half, and it was the word immediately. The first half of the gospel of Mark, immediately this happens, then immediately that happens, then immediately this happens, then immediately this happens. It just goes really fast, super fast. But once we start to turn the corner and approach, once Jesus starts to head to Jerusalem and approach the cross, the, the story starts to slow down. The cross gets larger and larger and larger. And Jesus is preparing his team, his disciples, the men who have committed their lives to him for the pain and for the suffering, for the persecution, the rejection they are about to endure. That's what we read right before we hit the pause button. Now, our story this morning jumps right back in, and this story is on the heels of that conversation. This is an awesome story. I'm going to go ahead and read it for us. I would recommend, I don't remember if Jeremy said it or not, but we have study guides that we have prepared um, that are out there at the table that are really encourage, encouraging you. It's a tool to get you in God's word. We're, we're preaching through the whole book, but you've probably noticed I'm not preaching through every single story. Okay, I'm not preaching through every single story. So there's a few stories that I'm not covering, and that's really your assignment. Okay. Um, this story is powerful. It's awesome. So John chapter, Mark chapter 9, we're going to start. I'll, I'll start reading in verse 1. There is some, uh, some people think that maybe verse 1 belongs with the section above, and some think it belongs with the section below. I think it just brings them together. So I'll start with verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 13 this morning. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him, to them, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he did not know, for he did not know what to say, for, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. 
listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, um, we just pray that now as we open up these words, as we open up your word, Father, I pray that you would write your eternal truths on our heart, Father, that you would use this word this morning to encourage your people and to challenge your people, Lord, that we might be a people who walk in accordance with it. Lord, we love you and just pray that you would shine, that your spirit would be here, that he would shine your light on this text this morning for us. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. I want you to think with me just for a moment how different life would be if for every decision you had you faced with, you were giving sort of a glimpse of how that decision would play out. Imagine for a moment every decision you face in life, you had a glimpse before making the decision, a glimpse of how that would play out in your life. I, I think just, you know, just basic decisions. I think maybe 12 years ago as, as me and my wife thought um, about getting a dog, for example. <laughs> All right. If, if somebody were to say, you know, we were walking, Frank saw my dogs, he knows what I'm talking about. All right. Um, if you were to, you know, if I walk into the kennel before we purchase this dog and, and somebody say, okay, yeah, we're ready for it, but just I got a quick video to show you real quick. And in that video, you would see, you know, we would see my dog eating our couch. Um, maybe we would see ourselves walking around behind the dog picking up her poop, you know, for example. Or just running around, you know, it's just a video of me constantly calling out and just zero response <laughs> to what I say. Complete disregard for my word, right? If somebody were to just play, I mean, just a two-minute video clip, I'm guessing... If I knew that's how those 12 years were going to look like, I'm guessing me and my wife would have just said thanks, but no thanks, right? That didn't happen, obviously. Think about, like, watching a movie on Netflix. Like, if somebody could just tell you this is going to be a colossal waste of the next two hours of your life, <laughs> don't click play. Like, how awesome would that be? I could get that time back. Or, you know, just, just like if we had an idea of if I eat this burrito, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> You know, think about every little decision you make. If you knew how it was going to play out, how would it affect your life? Even the big decisions, right? The major decisions in our life, investing time and resources and, and, and education to get a particular career. If you were to know, maybe that career is never going to be there. Maybe it's never going to pay, pay you what you think you might need. Or maybe where you live, 
as you decide where you want to live, kind of sow your roots, where you want to call home. If you were to know, this is what it's going to look like if you live here. Think about how awesome that would be to, to get an idea. Think of relationships. Uh, imagine how if you were to know exactly how the, your relationship with a particular person was going to play out, how that would affect the trajectory of your life. Knowing exactly where this relationship is going. Think about it. How amazing would that be? At the point that we find ourselves in here in Mark's gospel, the disciples are, they have been encountered. They have come to face to face with the greatest decision they're going to ever have to make in their entire life. Jesus showed them that the way of Jesus, his way is a way of suffering, of rejection, of persecution and desertion, pain and death. And, and if they are to follow Jesus, that's what they are embracing. They are embracing ultimately the way of the cross. What Jesus does with the transfiguration here in the story this we have this morning is he is showing them that they're embracing by embracing this way of the cross embracing the suffering servant that that's not where the story ends that's not where it ends he's showing them through the transfiguration that Jesus' his true nature is revealed to the disciples and it's confirmed by the Father. And with this miracle, and that's what it is, he is encouraging the disciples to be faithful to their call to follow him, to embrace him even if it means death. That's what he's doing with the transfiguration. This particular miracle is one that is often forgotten. When you think of miracles, this is not oftentimes one of the ones, the first ones that people think about. Uh, and I think there's a couple of good reasons. One primarily is because of the unique nature of what we read in Mark chapter 9. There is no real parallel text throughout all of Scripture that comes anything close to this. If you were to think of the prophets of old, you know, there was miracles. I mean, many of them more even fantastic than what Jesus did. If you think about what Moses would do, what Elijah would do, some phenomenal miracles they would be responsible for. There is none that comes close to this. This is amazing. And to show that this suffering servant is one that we as a people should be ready to embrace, we have just two quick points just to make that argument. And the first one is, in our text this morning, we see that Jesus' glory is revealed. It's revealed. Prior to this passage, we talked about how, how, how we, we learn about the cross of Christ first kind of comes on the scene, right? And before that, we hear about the confession that Peter makes of Christ, right? Jesus is with his disciples, and he asks them a question, who do others say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter answered him, you are the Christ, 
See, the disciples have seen him display his power miracle after miracle. They've seen his authority just completely on display. And, and they see that his kingdom is coming. And this is a kingdom that's been long awaited. These men have been waiting for a, the kingdom. They've been waiting for the Christ, for the Messiah. And think about how they must feel knowing that they're on his team, that he has chosen, specifically chosen these men to be with him. Imagine how that must feel as right when everything starts to come together, that he is the Messiah. He has all power. He has chosen me to be on his team. Then Jesus says, wait, hold up. Not so fast. This Christ whom you have longed for, the one who's standing in front of you, the one who has, he has come to usher in God's kingdom, but the nature of the kingdom is so different than what you expect. The way of this kingdom, he says, is the way of the cross. Radically different than the disciples' expectations. Jesus tells them, I'll be rejected, you will be rejected. I will suffer, you will suffer. In fact, anyone who would be a part of this kingdom, let him deny himself, take up his cross, then follow me. This is not what they had imagined. And if you can put yourself in their shoes, this would be a difficult pill to swallow. If you remember, Peter rebukes Jesus. This is a crazy claim. Nobody's going to get you, Jesus. And, and Jesus would turn to, to Peter and, and, and basically call him Satan. Anybody who stands in the way of Jesus going to the cross is akin to Satan. It's a tool in the devil's hands. The disciples, right when they're starting to figure out and recognize Jesus' true identity, that's when he, puts, he talks to them about the message of the kingdom, the way of the cross. And, and what we see, what Jesus shows them in the, in the passage before, is that the path of the kingdom won't be easy. And the same is true for us today. Many of you know that. If you follow Jesus, it is not oftentimes an easy path. If you are on the, on the road in the kingdom, it is difficult. It is difficult. It is not easy. But what Jesus shows them with the transfiguration is that though his way is not easy, it is worth it. It's absolutely worth it. And this is exactly what we need to hear today what many of you need to hear today. What Jesus has called you to, what he has called me to, what he invites us to be a part of, it won't be easy. Like when you try to live this life out in the context of relationships, of a workplace or a school, and there's parts of this world where you, where you live this out and, and you can't even, it's hard to even do it outside of your home. It is difficult. It won't be easy. But the message we need to hear is the same message they needed to hear that day on the mountain. It won't be easy, but by God, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. So Jesus lets the cross simmer for just a bit Six days to be exact, we hear in the text. And then he selects three disciples, his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. He says, come with me. And he takes them up on a mountain. Now, just a tip. Anytime you're reading scripture, 
and there is a mountain involved. This is a big deal. This is a big deal, right? Lots of mountaintop experiences. Think of Abraham, for example. He demonstrated his faith on a mountain. He took his son and and did exactly as the Lord had commanded him, preparing to do the unthinkable. At the critical moment, God came through. Think of in Exodus 20, Moses received the Ten Commandments on a mountain. So significant was this mountaintop encounter with God that when he came down, his face radiated the very glory of God's presence. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah met with God on Mount Carmel and called down fiery victory over hundreds of false prophets. You could go all throughout scripture and see one mountaintop experience after another. When they're on a mountain, you want your nose in the text. What is about to happen? Verse 2 through 3, we learn that he was transfigured. Now, we don't know much about what he looked like. Uh, We do know that his form was changed, right? The word is where we get the word metamorphosis, to change in a manner visible to others. Matthew and Luke tell us more specifically that his face changed and shone like the sun. Mark stresses his clothes, radiant, intensely white, whiter than as they were, as if they were bleached. Exceedingly white is the point. So white that their eyes can't even take it in. This is, I mean, probably the closest thing I could think of is like that first day in the spring when my family says, let's go to the pool and it's time for me to take off my shirt. Like, that's maybe the closest I can think. Okay, this is even whiter than that. This is, this is, I mean, he can't even, the idea is that, that as, as Mark, who's really giving Peter's account, this is Peter's account, remember, uh, Mark is, is, is writing down what Peter saw, and, and he's just trying to find language to hang on what they experienced on that mountaintop. You almost sense that he's struggling just with the words that he's using to, to describe the glory that his eyes beheld. This is simply an otherworldly encounter. A being so unlike any being these men's, men have ever, ever encountered, this was simply spectacular. I think of like fireworks, and I'm not a huge fireworks fan, but I think as I have you know, just grown as a father and, and spend time with my family, there's, there's really kind of two shows on the 4th of July. Right? There's a show of like the shots, you know, the fireworks shooting up into the air and sparks exploding in the sky, just lighting up the night. But, but then there's also, I mean, probably the show I like to watch more is just watching my kid's face as that happens. Right? And just watching their eyes get big and the light reflecting off of their faces and the oohs and the ahs. You know? And you can just imagine what Jesus saw as his glory poured forth and poured out onto the faces of his disciples. Can you imagine? Just when they thought they understood who he was, Jesus pulls back the veil and they are completely completely, completely blown away. John would say in his gospel in in chapter 1, verse 14, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And that's exactly what this is. This glimpse of Jesus, full of glory, is a wonderful provision of God's grace. It would give these men hope 
and their darkest hours. This sneak peek would be what would keep them on the path. They'd been walking around with Jesus, and, and they knew he was special. They knew he was different, but his true, full glory had not been, had, had been veiled during this time. They saw the miracles. They, they heard the teachings. They knew he was, he was unlike anyone they've ever seen or met before. This is, it reminds me of Exodus 34 when, when Moses is, is with, with God and he's about to take the Ten Commandments down to the people. And, and Moses says, listen, the job that you have for me, it's, it's too big for me. And I won't do it if you don't go with me, God. If your glory does not go before me, I am not your man for the job. And, and what, what God does with Moses is he tucks him into the cleft of a rock. And he passes before Moses. And, and while he's in the rock, God even covers him with his hand so that he can't see or behold his full glory. It's probably the closest of a parallel that we have to this text, yet this one is different. The story goes on and says that when Moses would come down from the mountain, that people would look at him and his face just beamed and shone because it reflected just the radiance of God's glory. Well, where Moses' faith face reflects God's glory, Jesus is God's glory. It is a radically, radically different scenario. Now, we learn, if we were to look into the parallel account that, that Luke has in chapter 9, we learn that, that what Jesus, it's so interesting to me, that Jesus doesn't say to the guys, like before they go up in the mountain, what he does not say to them is, hey guys, I'm going to blow you, your mind open right now. We need to get on top of the mountain. Let's go. He doesn't prepare them for it in that way. What he tells them, we know this in Luke chapter 9, is he says, let's go up to the mountain to pray. Let's go to the mountain to pray. And I'd like to see, many of us may say, I would like this kind of a mountaintop experience, an encounter with God. Perhaps you've had it before. And perhaps some of us have had it, and we're constantly trying to get back to that, right? And we might be thinking, what God needs to do is he needs to, he needs to call me up on a mountain as well so that I can see it. But it's so, what's so awesome is that these men were simply going to pray. And in the pattern, in the rhythm of this spiritual discipline is where they met God. There's a principle. Mountaintop experiences often emerge from our regular spiritual disciplines, the regular disciplines of our lives. Don't expect God to show up in your life in dramatic ways if you don't show up before him in faithful, consistent disciplines. Prayer. Reading your Bible. That's where these men were headed. They were, they were on their knees when God showed up. And I think the same is true for us. The same is true for us today. If we want to have an encounter like these men had, where we meet the living God, but we're not willing to fall on our faces, I mean, God can do miracles, and he has. But my suggestion would be fall on your face. Be on your knees. And there appeared Elijah and Moses. Why Elijah and Moses? There's a number of different reasons. And 
you know, the mountaintop experiences. Um, one is the founder of Israel's religious economy, and the other is kind of seen as the restorer of it. Lots of different reasons, but I think there's, there's two primary that, that kind of jump out to me. Both, first of all, were featured in prophecies about the end times. Elijah was expected to re- return. We learned this in, in Malachi 4, 5, and the nation of Israel was, was waiting for, the prophet, for a prophet like Moses The fact that both are here on the mountain together signals the presence of a messianic age that the people had long been waiting for. But what is more is that both Moses and Elijah together are really representative of the entire Old Testament. When you think of Moses, you think of the law. And when they would think of Elijah, they would think of the prophets. And so as you consider Moses and Elijah together there with Jesus, you see all of the old, the promises in the Old Testament represented there in Moses and Elijah. But in Jesus, what you see is the fulfillment of those promises. And so there's a reason why poof, just before the disciples, poof, Moses and Elijah disappear. And now they're left with Jesus. It's because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises we read about in the Old Testament. Jesus is the yes to all of those promises. They all find their yes in him. He is the greater, the better Moses. He's the greater, better Elijah. The bottom line is that the presence of Elijah and Moses standing with Jesus, shining forth in glory, what are they talking about? It's interesting, it says they're talking about, if you go to Luke, what he tells us they're talking about is Jesus' departure. So these three men are standing there, they're having a conversation with Jesus, and the topic of that conversation is the cross. That's the topic of the conversation, the suffering that Jesus is going to endure. Jesus is the majestic Christ, and he's the suffering servant. Next, we hear about Peter's response in verses 5 through 6. I love the way Peter responds. You just kind of see his face, like it's all going down, and, and Peter's standing there, and he's like, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here, right? You know? Yeah, Right? He has no idea how to respond. Completely, completely confused. The Bible says he's terrified. That's probably exactly how you and I would feel. It's awesome that his response is, let's build some booths. Let's put some tents. One for all of you. We could just stay here. We could just stay here in this presence. Mountaintop experiences are awesome. They're an act of God's grace on our life, and oftentimes we want to stand there, to stay there. If you can think of times in your life when you have been the closest to God, I mean, many of those times you just kind of want to pause, hit the pause button, and just stay right there. I could completely sympathize with Peter. There's no place that he would rather be, no place he would rather be. Jesus has a different plan. Verse 7, it's almost like his, his, you know, request was completely ignored and, and all of a sudden the father's confirmation in verse 7 Peter's request just totally ignored a cloud overshadows them and again we see clouds anytime the presence of, of God comes to earth we see it come into the form of a cloud the cloud is what led God's people through the wilderness it's what filled the tent of the meeting it's what filled the temple the tabernacle and the temple when it was finally completed a cloud comes down for 600 years it had been since Israel had, had seen this Shekinah glory. But here it is. 
And as they stood there in complete terror, complete awe, a voice would speak. And the voice says simply, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. This is discipleship. The way of a disciple is listening to Jesus. This is where discipleship begins, responding to the call. When, when Christ bids these men to come and follow him, you listen to Jesus. It's where it starts. And every step of the way is a step of listening to Jesus. As a disciple, this is what we do. There will be difficult times in life, times when it, you may be tempted to listen to other people because there's a different message that promises maybe a greater hope, but a disciple is one who constantly is listening to Jesus. Again, if you think about our commitments, it's hard to listen to Jesus if you're not in his word. Like, that's how God speaks to us, through his word. Jesus is God's word. And, and we are called to listen to him. Isn't it an amazing thing that we have a God who speaks to us? We aren't left in confusion. I mean, this world is confusing enough, right? This world is confusing. Mixed messages everywhere. And we have a God who speaks and tells us exactly what he expects from us. We are to be a people who regularly make time to listen in God's word on our knees. That's how you listen to God. He speaks. He tells us exactly what he would have for us. Just for the sake of time, I want to just point out a, a now verse. I'll, I'll tell you real quick. Verses 9 through 13. There are probably, it's probably one of the most controversial portions in the book of Mark. One of the, one of the most controversial ones. A lot of people have a hard time interpreting what is happening in verses 9 through 13. It's a greatly deba debated section, many different ideas. The disciples are still trying to make sense of all that they had just seen. Uh, they, they want clarity from Jesus. Please tell us, teacher, what do you mean? Are, what do the teachers of the law say about Elijah, referring back to the Old Testament pro prophecy of Malachi 4 and 5, about his return? They want some clarity. They're confused. What does this mean? Is he going to come first? They're confused about what Jesus meant when he talks about rising from the dead. They, they don't fully understand exactly how it's all going to go down. So you can see them trying to squeeze these pieces of the puzzle together. And lots could be said, but just simply one observation. As these men reflect on what they had just seen, it's so interesting to me that Jesus's conversation, he takes the conversation right back to the cross. If you were to plot kind of a storyline for this section of Mark, it starts with the cross and suffering. There's a mountaintop experience where they, they encounter the living God. They come down from the mountain in the First topic of conversation, they try to take it somewhere else, and Jesus drives it back to the cross. He drives it right back to the cross. As much as they want to stay on the mountain, there is a world that's waiting for them. Now, there's a, a painting, Raphael, famous Renaissance artist. The last painting of his career was actually the Transfiguration. You can put it up there. 
the transfiguration. And it's interesting to think this, this picture really captures the essence of this text. At the top of the picture, you see Jesus, you know, his interpretation of Jesus floating there in the sky, right? You see Elijah and Moses around him. And then you see the three disciples who are covering their eyes from his glory, shielding their faces. And then below the disciples... It's interesting. You see some men pointing at Jesus. You see other men pointing. If you notice right here, there's a man that's holding a boy, and, and the boy is kind of stretched out like this. And if you were to look, zoom in on his face, you would see he has this crazy look on his face. And what we find out is that if we keep reading, there's going to be, once they get down from the mountain, they encounter a crowd. Right? And in the crowd, there's a man who, who, who wants his son healed. He's possessed by a demon, and, and the disciples, the other disciples are trying to heal him, and they can't heal the son. They can't heal him, but he desperately wants him healed. Right? And the idea is we can be tempted to stay on the mountain, but there is a troubled world that is waiting for us. If you are here today and you have met Jesus, you have had an experience where you have encountered the living God, the, the temptation can be, and we see this happen throughout history, is to pull back, to pull back from that world and, and to just want to stay there in his presence. But, but Jesus is incredibly intentional. There is a troubled world that is waiting at the base of this mountain. And the same God that you met on top is the same one that needs to be down there with those people. And they follow Jesus down to the foot of the mountain. Eventually Jesus will heal this boy. But the, but the truth is the same for us today. That the church can be a place that sometimes we retreat and pull back, that we pull out of the world. And you see this happen in different movements throughout history. But a temptation for us is indeed, and it needs to stay a, stay a temptation. We have to be a people who takes the message of the gospel, the power of Jesus, and puts it on display for all those around us to see. Because the truth is, like I said before, we have gifted people. Many of you are gifted, educated. You have a tremendous amount of skills that you can offer to this community, to the world. But if we don't offer the hope of Jesus, we don't offer anything. It's the greatest thing that we have is to share this hope with Jesus, of Jesus with the world. Just a couple of things of how we could apply this. This message, like I said from the beginning, was an encouragement to the disciples to stay on the path. This will be worth it. This is why it's worth it. For us, when political forces would, would, would want to, to push in against the church, and sometimes what can happen, just like it did for them, it can, it can cause them to want to, to leave and to abandon this God that we serve. The same thing can happen to us today. But those outside forces, our response is we need to lean into Jesus, not run from Jesus, right? When, when, when our relationships get difficult, when our job is hard, 
when it's hard to be a witness and to speak the things of this, this book with those people around us, we need to stay on the path, right? Even when persecution comes, when rejection comes, when desertion comes, we need to stay on the path. Jesus gives us a glimpse of who he is that helps us stay on the path. So the challenge before us this morning is very simple. It's to embrace Jesus not just one side of Jesus, but all of who Jesus is. The suffering servant, be ready to embrace that. And the majestic Christ, that's who he is. That's who he is. And as his people, we are, in call to, we are called to embrace all of that. My hope and my prayer is that just this story, this transfiguration, the revealing, the unveiling of God's full glory would give us a glimpse of who Jesus really is and why he really matters to us. Let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, we thank you just for your grace, Lord, that this, um, the transfiguration, that Lord, you're the unveiling of your full glory and majesty before these three men, Lord, we thank you that there were witnesses that were there that saw this, that could preserve it for us to share in it. Lord, and I pray that you would expand our understanding of who you are. That you would reveal your glory, your nature to us, Lord. And that would be an encouragement to your saints, Father. And that when the journey that we are walking, the path we are on, Father, gets difficult, when it is hard, Lord, I pray that you would let us be a people who say it is worth it. The things in our life that need to go, I pray that you would let us say it's worth it. Maybe the relationships or the people in our life that need to go, but I pray that you would help us be able to say it's worth it. Or the change maybe that we need to make, whatever that is, Lord, I pray that because of our big vision of who you are, that we would be a people who say, It's worth it. We ask these things in your name. Amen.